0: The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. We're going to talk about prayer today. And prayer is one of those things, like I've never met a Christian anywhere ever in my life even once that was like, prayer, not an issue for me, I'm nailing it. I've never met that guy. If you're here, we should have coffee. You need to teach me but I have never met anyone that felt like they don't struggle on any level or that they pray enough or they pray well enough or any of that. Prayer is a a complicated and difficult thing, and and it's it's just hard. Can we just say right away? minute? Prayer is hard. We're going to see in the text that I think Jesus even admits that prayer is going to be hard, but there's reasons why maybe we don't pray or pray as effectively as we ought, three of which I believe are addressed actually in the text that we have here. Um, one of them is many of us don't pray because we don't think that we need him, and that can come in a couple of different forms. Um, we tend to live under the illusion of control, that if I got everything under control, everything seems to be okay, I think I got everything handled, I know what to do, the bad things that come for other people, they're not going to come for me, I think I'm okay. Um, the news this week has shown us how completely untrue that that is, as you look at the forest fires in, in paradise and in other places. And, and you can see that a lot of people, like, have you ever noticed when tragedy comes, one of the first thing people run to, even people who aren't believers, they run to what? Prayer. We need help. We need pray. It's like an admission that, oh, no, life is spun out of control and now I need help. So I'll go to him in prayer. But when things seem to be OK, prayer lives tend to struggle or when people just feel like they just don't need to pray because they're good enough. Like, I, I'm good. I'm nailing it. Why would I need to go to God? He, I'm awesome. He loves me. I'm killing it. Um, that is not me. But for many people, that might be the case. Um, Another reason that people don't often pray is because, and this one's probably way more prominent, I'm going to guess, in this room, is you don't actually think God likes you. And what I mean by that is this. You, You believe that God is always frustrated with you, or or that you you aren't good enough yet to come before Him, or the failure from yesterday, or the failure from five minutes ago, is something that you need to first deal with, because you can't go to God. He's going to think, well, of course, you're coming to pray, but you got that mess. Go clean yourself up before you come back here. That's most people. And if you think that God is frustrated with you, or upset with you, of course you're not going to run to Him. Like, why would you? Who does that? Instead, you're going to feel like, I need to clean myself up and get enough things under control before I can go to him. And so people that struggle understanding the reality of God's love for them often don't pray. And and then the other reason is this. You just think it doesn't do anything anyway. So why bother? That it's just not going to work. So it, your time would be better spent going and actually doing something than praying because prayer isn't doing something. I believe all of these are dealt with in this text. Now this text comes to us in response or right after verse 37 of Luke chapter 17, which is such a strange transition because the last thing Jesus says before this is where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. That's his lead in word. That sounds like a death metal line, doesn't it? Where the corpse is, the vultures will gather. Just me? Nobody? Alright, anyway. I think that's funny. Anyway, what's going on there? Well, Jesus has been teaching about the coming kingdom of God. About the reality that the kingdom has been inaugurated but not fully yet consummated. It's not here in its fullness yet and one day it's going to come. And he's teaching his disciples about that, but with the coming kingdom of God and all of the goodness and excitement that those in the grace of of Christ might enjoy comes the dark reality that judgment comes as well, and not everybody's going to make it. And he's teaching about this. There's some that will be taken and there's some that will not. And the disciples, now remember, we have a more full understanding of what all that's going to look like because we have the full scriptures now. They didn't yet. So this stuff was super new to them. And there's a lot of questions. And here's this guy, they've been following, watching him like like heal and, and cast out demons and all this stuff. And then he's like, and by the way, but here's what the kingdom is gonna come. The kingdom, when it does come, it's gonna have some stuff that's gonna be difficult too, such as. And he begins to talk about this. And the disciples are like wondering and they surely have lots of questions. And so they're like, where? When? How is this gonna happen? Where? And he says, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Sam dealt with that two weeks ago, but that's the text. So, so consider that context. They're hearing this news of like judgment that's going to come one day and all this stuff. And their reaction is like, then what do we even do? Like what, what do we do with that? And Jesus' answer appears to be, you need to pray. You need to be people of prayer. And so in verse 1 he says, He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart, which if we can pause right there, automatically admits to the fact that prayer is something that can be difficult, that we can often lose heart doing. That Jesus knows prayer isn't super easy, it becomes hard at times, and he's saying even when it's hard, even when it's difficult, even when times are scary, even when things are going on, don't lose heart, this is something worth pursuing. Um, James Edwards, a, a commentator today, says this, prayer is beset with opposition and discouragement, pleas for justice that sometimes appear to go unheard, answers that seem delayed, people crying out day and night. We must understand prayer is not some parlor exercise, perfunctory and tidy. It is an existential battle. Prayer is difficult, It's, we could go in, we don't have time today because we have 11 minutes, but we could go into the reality of, of the spiritual warfare that's there, the battle between the flesh and the spirit, all of these different things, as well as the three things that I just mentioned a couple of minutes ago, then prayer's a challenge. And some of us have seasons of great victory and many of us have seasons too of, of great defeat. And so Jesus is saying to the guys, listen, this is something worth pursuing. Don't lose heart. Keep after this. And then he tells this story here. Look at verse 2. In a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. So think of this judge and what are his motivations. In his um, performance of his duties as judge, his motivating factors are not, I want to do what's right before God, and his motivating factors are not, I want to do what's right for these people. In reality, he does not care what God thinks, and he does not care what the people thinks, which leaves only one other thing. He'll do what he wants. So that's his only motivation, as you'll see in just a moment. Not trying to be righteous. He's not trying to be just. He doesn't care about being fair, and he doesn't care what God says. Morality is not an issue to him. That's, that's not his purposes. So that's this guy. But then there's this other person. Verse three there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him saying, Give me justice against my adversary. Now, a quick cultural background to understand. In that day and age, women were largely powerless. And if a woman wanted to go to court and plead some sort of cause, she typically needed to have a man with her to advocate on her behalf. So her, her pleas in court needed to come through a husband, a father, a son, even a brother. But if she's a widow without a man to go to court for her in that particular category, she is the epitome of helpless. So, all right, so think of the situation. A woman without that advocate viewed as completely helpless in society is going before a judge who doesn't care what God thinks and doesn't care what she or anyone else thinks. So what are her options for justice to come out of this? Like, what's the chances? Really low right? Really low, this situation. And so verse three, she keeps going. She's going to him and she says, give me justice against my adversary in verse three. Now, verse four, for a while he refused. So the Greek tense there is, is, it's a continuing text. And what it means is this. He had no intention of helping her at all. It wasn't just a, I'll get to it later. He said, nope, go away. That was his plan. No intention of doing anything good whatsoever. But afterward, verse 4, he said to himself, and I love that they, Jesus uh, reiterates his motivations here. Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Okay, so notice. Why does he finally decide to hear her case? He says, This is not because I respect God. Morality does not play in whatsoever. And this is not because I care what you or anyone else thinks. You're just annoying me. And, and literally like the, the translation here where it says beat me down, um, it it almost means like you are beating me black and blue. It'd be like, you're killing me smalls. Why do you keep coming over and over and over? No Sandlot fans in the room. That's okay. But, um, (laughs) this is what he's doing. Like, he's just like, this isn't about doing right. I'm just annoyed by you. Fine. For the sake of my own comfort, I'll just answer your case. But it's not because I like you. It's not because I'm trying to do right. And it's not because of God. I just want you to go away. And so he allows himself to hear her case. Now, this is the God comparison in this analogy. It's a really weird analogy, right? But look what he says here in verse 6. The Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, or it's a rhetorical question. In other words, do you understand what the unrighteous judge's example says to us? That's what this means. A rhetorical question. Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on earth? Here's what he's saying. He's like, listen, God, like the judge, will hear and will answer. But unlike the judge, God wants to. Like, you are not an unwelcome guest coming before the presence of God. You're not an annoyance to him. He uses the word elect. In other words, he's saying this, hey, God picked you. God wants you. God desires you. You are not an unwelcome guest who you need to annoy God or you need to pray in such a way that you're almost like manipulating him into acting on your behalf. No. Look, if an unrighteous judge will eventually relent, how much more will God, who loves you, who cares for you, and who is all about justice, who is all about righteousness, of course, he's going to listen to you. That's his call. This is, this is so important to notice this. The ultimate concern of Jesus is not on the divine side of the question or the equation, I should say. Because here's what he's saying. Of course God's going to listen. Of course God will respond. Of course God will be just. Now the word speedily gets a little confusing for some people because you you read that and go, well, I've prayed and the answer hasn't come back speedily. But that word actually also translates as assuredly, which is my guess, a better translation for there. Um, What Jesus is saying you can rest assured that God will hear you and God will respond justly and rightly. Of course he will. Jesus' question is not on the God side of the equation. His question is on the human side of the equation. That's why he says, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So it's, it's not, do you think God will listen? It's more, do you think they'll pray? God will respond, of course he will. But will man have the faith and the boldness, to come before a God who loves them and cares for them, and to pour their heart out and to bring these things to bear to a God who cares for them. That's the issue. Um, the man I quoted earlier, Edwards, he, he would go on to say this, and this is a quote worth writing down. He said this, God is way more interested in answering our prayers than we are in praying. And that should be a ooh, quote right there, because it's true. God is way more interested in hearing what we have to say, and responding in response to the things that we bring to him. He is way more interested in the cries of his people and in answering those prayers than we typically are in actually going to him in prayer. This is what God does, and he's calling us to this. We are invited guests in the presence of God. We are not unwanted annoyances. And Even more than that, like Jesus gives, gives relational freedom that we don't even give to our kids. Because think about it. If my son comes to me and goes, can I watch a show? And I go, no, not right now. You've watched enough TV this week. And then he comes back about 30 seconds later. Can I watch a show? No. 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 You know what I end up doing? If you ask me one more time, you will never watch a show again for the rest of your lives. I will cancel Netflix, I swear. Like, the constant outpouring shuts me down. But he's saying, keep coming keep coming, keep coming. You are not an unwanted guest in the presence of God. You are a welcome child that He died to save so that you might have that access. So, come. Come before Him over and over. Okay, so why? Why does God listen to us and how does that work? If that's the idea of like, hey, don't don't be insecure about your prayers and don't be fearful or timid about what do I do with all this stuff, the, the opposite of that has to do with like an overconfidence that would say, well, yeah, of course God's going to listen to me. <laughs> Have you seen me? And so take a look at what he says next. Verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they treated others with contempt. So, They're looking at others as these people have failed to meet my level of righteousness. And they're looking down their nose at these people feeling they are the standards, if you will. So verse 10 says this, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, I know we've done a lot of work on tax collectors and Pharisees, but in case there's anyone here that is just joining us, let me quickly tell you who they are and why this is important. The Pharisees were the people of Israel who were kind of the spiritual leaders, but primarily because they believed that, and, and, and really all of society around them did, that they were nailing it with regards to, like, no one kept the law of God better than them. They were the experts at keeping the law. They did everything right. They went to incredible lengths to make sure they had done every single thing right. Those were the Pharisees. Tax collectors, on the other hand, were the lowest of the low in Jewish society. Um, They were the ones who not only took incredible amounts of money from the people of Israel, but think of it this way. Israel was under the oppression of the Roman military at the time. And tax collectors were Jewish nationals, most likely, who their job it was to extract taxes from the people of Israel to make sure that the army that, had, um, that was keeping Israel under its thumb and in many cases had killed people that they knew had murdered, like the, the Roman army is a brutal army, the tax collector's job was to make sure that army was well fed, well armed, well empowered, and stayed in control. So these would be people, your, maybe even a cousin or a brother and sister or a next-door neighbor, whose job it was to make sure the military that's been oppressing you the whole time got to keep doing it. So they were viewed as traitors. They were the worst of the worst. And these are the two men that it says come up to the temple, they come up to worship together to come up to pray. So in verse 11, the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. Now, remember, in that culture, it was believed that it was completely within the power of a man to uphold all of the religious law. And they believed that those outward signs of obedience were were, um, indicative of inward piety and purity. So they would watch the way people lived and go, man, look at that guy. He is perfect. That is a holy, holy person. And here's this guy. He's saying, not only have I lived up to the law, I've gone beyond. So for example, Jewish law required men to fast on Yom Kippur. He's saying, I fast twice a week. I do more even than I'm asked among these things. So he's, he's chest thumping like this. Look at what I do. Thank you, Lord. All of this kind of, this is the way his prayers are. And and notice, by the way, he's what? He's standing off to the side. He's praying off by himself. Why? Because he doesn't want to get any of that tax collector on him. Doesn't want to get any of that sin on him. And he's looking at those guys as being so despicable, so vile, and so beneath the approval of God, just like stay away from me. And so he's over here praying, but kinda of with an eye in the corner of his you know, an eye in the corner looking on him like, Lord, I am so glad I'm not that guy. That's the prayer that he's making. He says, I'm glad I'm not like other people as the dude's right there. You know what I mean? Okay. Well, what about the other prayer? Look at him. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast. Okay, this is a different kind of chest thumping. This isn't, look at me. This is um, self-flagellation. This is, I'm not even worthy of comfort. This is that like, I'll hurt myself to prove because I know that I'm not worthy of this. This is like I deserve to be beaten up for the kind of person that I am. I don't deserve to stand near anyone else, so I'm going to stay over here to the side. And even, I won't even lift up my eyes to the heavens. You ever felt that way? Did you feel it this morning? That like How, how do I come to the communion table with the weekend that I had? How do I come before God with what I did? Nobody here may know, And on that level, you might be okay because we look at the outward, right? But you know, you know, and God knows, and you know God knows. So you're like, if I do this, God's just looking at me like, what are you doing? Why are you coming to the table? Why are you worshiping? You ever felt that way? Well, if you've ever felt like that, the next part is going to really bring hope to you. Let me say it differently if you have felt like that, the next part's going to bring hope to you. If you've never felt like that, the next thing that happens is like terrible for you, terrifying for you, because look what happens. Verse 14, and the terror here is in the comma. If it was a period, it wouldn't be so bad. But look, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, comma. Now, if that was a period, if he just said, this man went down to his house justified, we might be like, Oh, awesome. So the guy who was repentant and he was doing this, but he knew, so he was repenting. And so he's okay. He got justified. That's awesome. They're all going to heaven. That's not what it says. It says this guy went down justified. The other guy, rather than the other. Read that again. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let me put it to you like this way. The Pharisees praying, saying, I thank God I'm not like the others. But in the end, Jesus says, this is the one who came to live with me, not the others. One man was known by men because of all of his outward explanations or outward uh, workings of his religion. But one man was known by God because of his repentant heart. And in the end, there was the others and there was the saved. That's some heavy stuff right there, but that's totally the reality. There's a phrase about this story that's been said before. Two men went up to pray, one actually did. You know, what do you mean by that? Because look at the prayer of the Pharisee. He's not not praying to God about anything. Like, he's thanking God, but he's thanking God for what? For all the stuff he did. Thank you, God, that I'm awesome. That's essentially what he's praying. Thank you, God, that I do everything right, and that guy doesn't. There's no dependence on God there, There's no throwing your trust in him. There's none of that. There's just like, I thank you, God, that you picked a winner. That's what he's saying. But the prayer of the tax collector is coming before God and saying, I have no hope but your mercy. It's the only shot I have. So I'm begging you, Lord have mercy on me. And by the way, in the original language, he doesn't say have mercy on me a sinner. In the actual Greek language it says has mercy on have mercy on me the sinner. The sinner. Like I'm the worst of the worst and I know it and the only hope I have is mercy. And Jesus says that's the heart of the child of God. Not the one who stands on his own righteousness, but that's the heart of the child of God. We have no hope other than the grace of God. And that's such a great thing. That's such great news. Because we could fake it with each other, right? Many of us do. We can can fake it and make it look like we're pious and holy and killing it. But when we come to the table, when we come in prayer before the Lord, we know, like we, we know. And that's why many people don't pray, because they know. Like how do, I can't go talk to him. He knows. And that's where the beauty of the gospel is that says, "Listen, that, that whole He knows, that guilt that you have, that inability of the, the, the train wreck of your track record that you couldn't possibly stand on, that's why Jesus came. Isn't that great news? Those failures that keep you from wanting to come to the table, that keep you from feeling like you can lift your eyes to God, that's why He came. He knew that in advance, which means why would he be frustrated at you now when he knew it was coming and he chose to die for you in the first place? He just goes, just throw your trust in me and come. I died so that you can kind of have this kind of access. That's why I came. But if you want to stand on your own uh, own track record, it's not going to work. You'll just be the others. But if you want to be known by me, then you put your faith in me. And that's the gospel, guys. Our hope is built on nothing less but Jesus' blood and righteousness. That means there is nothing that you do that God looks down upon and goes, that's why I picked him. That's not happening. So the idea of looking down our nose or trying to weigh the scales is just a fool's practice. It, It doesn't matter We have access and acceptance before God for one reason and one reason only, and that is because God Himself became flesh and lived perfectly. Perfectly. So now we are robed, the Bible says, in the righteousness of Christ. So that track record, if you will, He doesn't see yours anymore. He sees the work of Jesus, in, in the same way that as we honored the military today, that a military uniform has badges that show achievements and rank and who you are and what you've done and all that kind of stuff. Think of it that way. It's like our uniform that is like garbage. Don't even think military uniform. Think prison uniform. That's more accurate. That's gone And that honored, decorated uniform of Jesus Christ has been robed around you so that now when God looks at you as you approach the altar, regardless of your failures and your sins, he sees the record of Jesus Christ. You stand on his righteousness and his mercy only. It is a gift of God, as Ephesians 2 says, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. so that no one may boast. The beauty of the gospel is not so that we would look good. The beauty of the gospel is to make God look good. And we rest on his work. Now, in closing, here's how the typical prayer sermons tend to go, at least in my upbringing. You should be praying. Jesus died, so you should be praying. And here's all the reasons you don't pray, and here's all the ways you should be praying, and so church, you need to start praying. And then you sit out there and you go, oh my goodness, I... Right. The Bible says it. I don't pray. I know I don't pray. I don't pray enough, or I don't play, pray well enough, whatever. Guilt kicks in. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. So from now on, I shall pray. And you go to lunch today after this service, and you order your food, and they go, Dad, you want to pray for the food? And you're like, Our Father, who are you know what I mean? You get like possessed for a minute, and you're like, Lord. I thank God for the prayer. You know what I mean? Like everybody's like looking. You don't see it because your eyes are closed. You're praying. Your kids are like, what happened to dad? But you're doing this like, right? And it might make it through the day. If you're type A, it'll carry on into tomorrow morning. And if you're type like AAA, you might actually put like a calendar reminders together in your phone. Like get up and pray, get up and pray, get up and pray. But you're going to delete that in like a week. It's just going to happen. So let's skip the guilt can we just do that? Let's skip the you need to and all that kind of stuff. And let me just remind you of this simple truth. You have access to the righteous king of the universe who loves you so much that he would die for you and who, in spite all of your flaws that are well known before his courts, he overlooks them, sees the righteousness of his son, and he looks at you and now calls you Son, daughter, son, daughter. You are a welcome guest in the presence of God. And you don't have to clean yourself up before you go there. In fact, I would argue, if you've messed up, that's all the more reason to run faster than anyone else back to the courtroom of His grace, because that's where you get reminded about how much He loves you in spite of your failures. I believe that realization And an understanding of the love of God towards you is a way better motivation to pray than guilt. Amen? So let's stand and pray and let's pray that in. Father, thank you for the mercy that you have poured out on us in this room. We are not trophies of our own doing. We are trophies of your grace. God, we do repent of failure to come to you, failure to fellowship with you, failure to pray, to to bring things to you. But Lord, I, I just ask more than anything, may we just have a more and more increased awareness of how much you love us. Just to realize in the depths of our soul how welcome we are to come before you. That is such a big deal. Can you help us to see that better, Lord? To understand that more clearly? Lord, I just thank you for your grace, and I just pray, Lord, for anyone in this room that is still trying to live on their own accomplishments, Lord. May you teach them your gospel. May they repent even of their own works, and I I just pray, Lord, that for every single person here, may we all stand upon your record, your grace, your love, and then, Lord, may we be faithful to carry that good news outside the walls of this building, because the world needs your love and your grace. So thank you, Lord, for having mercy on us, the sinners, and somehow saving us and now calling us instead of sinners, you call us sons and daughters. What an amazing gift. We worship you for that. We thank you for that. We praise you for that. And may, Lord, you um, just be glorified in our lives because of the grace you've poured out on us. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Hey, we've got pastor's coffee in here. If you want to come join us and come say hi. Also, look, if you've never given your heart to Jesus, if this gospel stuff is still new to you, please come in there as well and talk to us. And the rest of you go tell someone else about Jesus. Have a great week. Enjoy access to God the Father. Love you guys.